Rob Slades. Welcome. Season two. A very special guest. An interview with Mr. Speech of Arrested Development. Shout out Weapon ESP. Hold on, I'm just typing out here. Kane Major in the building. All right, got my bearings. Looks like Mr. Speech is here. Hold on. See if we can get him going. What's up? Hello. Yo. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing really good. You know, I'm actually glad we were able to get on this easily because... My uh, my IG has been crazy for a while. Like, for yeah. a while now, if I follow somebody, it will unfollow, like, immediately. And I had nothing to do with it. That's crazy. Yeah, so it's been a, like, problem trying to get on people's IG lives for some reason. So anyway, I'm glad it worked. I was having, yeah, what's up, man? I was having the same issue with my phone. It was, like, causing all this weird sound stuff. I had to get a new phone. Okay, <laughs> so I yeah, hope I, I might, sound all right. Yeah, I might have to do that because I mean, yeah, it's just been crazy. I don't, I don't even get it. I don't get it. Well, I'd like to welcome everybody to the Leeds Entertainment Podcast, brought to you by the Chubby Chickpea Restaurant, with a very special guest today, Speech of Arrested Development. Welcome. I'm glad we were finally able to do this. We tried doing this in the holidays. Yeah, Both I got sick. Got, did you know that? So did I. I. Yeah, 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 I got sick. COVID. Yeah. And how'd it go? It was tough. It was a bad run. It was a bad yeah. run. That was really, yeah. really, really tough. Really, really what, tough. Were you, were you uh, in the hospital and everything? No, I didn't go to the hospital, thank God. Um, stayed at home. My wife was not sick, so she was able to help care for me. My children got sick, too. So it was um, everybody but my wife was sick, <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> Yeah, but it yeah, was, I mean, it was same was thing here, man. Same thing here, man. Everybody really? got sick. I, I kind of got sick. I felt like I was fighting something, but I didn't get, I didn't pot, test positive. Okay. My whole house got it though. Oh wow! <laughs> so how so, did you, how did you like stay quarantined from everybody? You know, I did it. You, oh, and you still <laughs> never got sick, man. I was like, I was like, I'm gonna get it, and then I never got it. Wow! And I was lucky. Yeah, you were. That's great. You know, it, you know what I claim it to it was it's it was because I worked eighteen years in a nightclub, uh-huh. <laughs> and your, your your body's able to fight off any germs. Like, yeah, and it, I bring that up because you're you were brought up in a nightclub or a live music venue, right? As a kid, your dad owned one, right? Yeah, back then it was called discos. My dad owned a disco, and uh, and yeah, I, I grew up thir- from like age thirteen to eighteen. I was in a disco. Probably, I don't know, four nights out of the week. And was that like live music or just like dancing and club? Mainly a club, you know, right. DJ. Uh, every blue moon, my dad would bring in, like he brought in the stylistics, um, which was a highlight. But he probably only brought in like two live bands the whole time yeah. that he ran that club. So, yeah. So you were around music early. 
Oh, definitely. You know what I mean? Yeah. My mom played organ. My grandmother and my mom's side played organ in the church. And then I loved Michael Jackson, the Jackson 5 in particular. When they had a TV show that used to come on every Saturday, I used to rock that. I used to watch it. And so I fell in love with music through Michael Jackson. And then, um, then later, my dad owned this nightclub, and I started DJing. And one of his DJs, a brother named Kenny B., taught me how to spin. And that was an old-school spin. And so, like, music fading out, fading back in. And then I learned how to DJ hip-hop-wise from listening to records and listening to mixtapes from New York. Like, I used to listen to, you know, Grandmaster Flash, Adventures on the Wheels of Steel. Um, um, you know, and then, like, oh, somebody said, Speech, you have to do an album where you're, you're singing. The world needs to embrace... Oh, actually... Thank you. Yo, thank you. That's my man. Uh, dude, you got to pick up the joint, man. I did the expansion record. But anyway, I wanted to say right quick <laughs> that, that you know, I learned how to DJ from, you know, watching some of the greats. Grand Mixer DST on, on the Grammys was rocking with Herbie Hancock. Yeah. Stuff like that. I mean, I learned a lot. Chip, my yeah. man. Yeah, man. Shout out to Chip. Legendary vocalist. Legendary this club vocalist. was in Atlanta, right? You're from Atlanta, right? No, I'm from I'm from Milwaukee, and Milwaukee, my dad's nightclub was in Milwaukee. It's called the Fox Trap. Yeah. Ah, Milwaukee, <laughs> Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Wayne's World. I don't know if you got the reference. No, but, I uh, didn't. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. fine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he said. He called it Milwaukee. Um, so that were you exposed to a lot of craziness as a kid being in the club? Cause you just talked to me about your mom being in church and then your dad owning a nightclub. That's pretty, <laughs> from someone yeah. who's worked at a nightclub, like that's a, that's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff goes down. As a kid, you were exposed to like, was it yeah, crazy was, or was it just cool? Yeah, I know it was cool. It was all of those things. So, you know, yeah. I would see people doing drugs. I would see, you know, older relationships and, you know, women getting hurt by their men, women getting beat up by their men. At the end of the night, there was times when there was women that had gotten, you know, slapped around and she stayed behind. The, the man left the club and so the, the lights came back on and my dad's dealing with that. My dad used uh, to hire gang members to do security at the club because Milwaukee yeah. was unfortunately ravished with certain gangs and he would hire gang members from from each gang to rock yeah. the club so that neither of the gangs would really take over and and um so yeah it was a lot of lot of stuff that i learned you know just at a young age but not only that you know my father and mother were entrepreneurs so my dad owned a corn roasting business at the largest music festival in the world called Summerfest. this is um in milwaukee ironically and <clears throat> at Summerfest, you know it, it's a 12 noon to 12 midnight festival. And um, so I would see, you know, prostitutes getting beat up by their pimps. I would see people having sex by the lake. It's like, you know, all types of crazy stuff as a kid. You know what I mean? So, right. Yeah, just being exposed to a lot of things. Right. So when's the transition to Atlanta? When does that come? Is that college? Uh, 1987. I graduated high school. I left the, the very week I graduated high school. I left that very week. I moved yeah. to Atlanta. Yeah, I wanted to yeah. get away from Milwaukee. It was violent. It was a lot of um, a lot of my friends getting wrapped up in the crazy, you know, pathways and a lot of 
lot of killings and stuff like that. So, right. yeah. So 1988, though, you formed, is that right? Arrested Development? Well, pretty much, to be honest, the first week I got to Atlanta, I started to create um, a group. And, you know, it, we weren't called Arrested Development at the time, but it's like right. I put up a flyer the first day I got to, because um, I went to the Art Institute of Atlanta. And so the first day I got there, I put up a flyer saying, I'm looking for a DJ. I wanted to start rhyming more. I was DJing, obviously, and I wanted to rhyme more. And yeah. it was cool because uh, my man Headliner, who at the time, is just his real name is Tim. Tim was looking at the flyer, and we became cool. I talked to him that day, and we became really cool. And, you know, things just started to, to grow from that point. You know, Farida's yeah. on. What's up, Farida? One of the ADM members is on right now. Shout out nice. to you, Free. Much love so to you. What, what was the name of the first group? I got to know. Um, we first were called, um, I think it was either Disciples of a Lyrical Rebellion. or we were yeah, yeah. Or yeah. Society. I forget which one was first or second. So we had three names at first. It was it was uh Disciples of a Lyrical Rebellion, Secret Society, then Arrested Development. And we of course stuck with Arrested Development. Yeah. I always love hearing people's first groups or first yeah. draft names. It's yeah. always it's so entertaining. It yeah, just, it is. yours is right up there. <laughs> it is, yeah. Speaks to the time we were in. No doubt. So when does the group expand into what it what it, what it becomes? Because we're talking from '88 to the, you know the album, the first album is '92. Yeah. What happened? How do you turn it into this basically hip hop collective band? Yeah. Is it, it which was unheard of at the time commercially? Like you didn't see that. How did that all come about? Yeah, you know, I was a very I was very inspired by a few things. One was Jamaican culture. Because I used to, um, I went to Jamaica and I got inspired to put an old person in our group based on how I saw the young people and the old people like rocking with each other in Jamaica at parties right. and stuff. And then second of all, they had sound systems in Jamaica. So a lot of times the DJ was doing this thing and then people would just come on and do their thing here and there. Soul to Soul was a group that was doing well out of the UK and they had a similar concept where Jazzy B was the DJ and then you had people all around Jazzy B, different singers and, you know, different people sort of collaborating on music. So all of that was inspiration. Um, we started doing clubs, me and Headliner, Headliner to DJ me on the rhymes. And we started doing clubs throughout Atlanta. And we had about, I'd say, 10 or 12 dancers at the time. We had African drummers that would come on the stage with us and rock African drums. Um, we had poets that would come and do a little a little poetry. We had live painters that would come and do live painting. And it was just this vibe. And after some time, certain group members started really meeting us at every show. I shouldn't say group members. They were just people. And they were meeting us at every <laughs> show. And these people started to become sort of part of what we would do. And right. by the time we got a record deal, we had probably about 20 people on stage with us at any given moment. And we and had they, to weren't just the hype, they weren't just hype men. They weren't just hype men. They no, were no, doing no, something. No. <laughs> no. Just standing there. <laughs> in fact, in fact, by that time, you know, um, we had too many people to take on a tour because it was right. too expensive. And yeah. so they said, you know, why don't you break this down into just the people that you absolutely need to have on the record and on the tour? And um, so we did that. And 
broke it down, and, and it was me, Bob OJ, Razadon, Ishii, Early Tari, Headliner, and that's it, I think, I mean, it myself. <laughs> so, so, is, yeah. so is that only that is that only seven or eight? I think that's six, I think. So I, I might have miscounted, but me, Headliner. I feel like there was more. I feel like there was more in what I didn't know. Well, I, think, I will say, I <laughs> you know what, by the second album, by Zingle Amadouni, we added, I added, um, DJ Kimmett, Ajile, Nadira. So, yeah, I mean, we just kept getting bigger. And I think yeah. the real the real reason was that we left a lot of people behind. So, like, you know, by the time we released the first album, there was a sister named Paulette that was doing vocals. She did the vocals on Mama's Always on Stage, the singing vocals. And then there was a sister named Mawakana who did vocals on People Every Day. So we were just trying to bring these people into the fold as as this right. stuff was starting to get successful. You know what I mean? Right. So the first album, three years, five months, and two days in the life, 1992. Talk about making this album because it ends up being this huge commercial smash sell, six million copies. Am I correct? Um, yeah, I, worldwide. Yeah. Worldwide. This is when I start listening to hip hop. I'm about 12, 13 years old, and you guys are every. You guys are everywhere. I can't turn on. I can't. I can't escape you on MTV. Yeah. <laughs> talk about talk about making that album. I mean, did you guys know what you were working with when you were doing it? What was the process like of them? I'm very curious about that. Well, it was a few phases because, you know, I I, I produced most of the record. I wrote most of the rhymes. So, you know, I was a dude in my bedroom a lot. So, like, I would have a Tascam cassette recorder, and I would sort of create these songs as as demos really on this right. Tascam cassette recorder. I think it was an eight track, maybe a four track back then. And yep. um, you know, so all the songs were basically done in the room. And it was now just a matter of trying to repeat that or get that energy again on a record. And so we went to a really nice studio in Milwaukee. It was right outside of Milwaukee called Tracks 32. And Tracks 32 was our, you know, our opportunity to really do it more professionally. We were able to choose mics for various vocals. Like I used one mic on the song You than I used on, on People Every Day. And, you know, so it was just really having engineers involved and not just me doing everything from a recording standpoint. And then, of course, the group, we all went down together. We all just, it was really fun, actually. It was like a lot of... Yeah. Um, because we already knew what we were doing. Now, mind you, we came from a mindset of, you don't go to the studio with nothing in your mind. Like, it was too expensive. I mean, we were broke. Yeah. So to go in the studio with just, let's try to create something, that wasn't a thing we did back then. Um, we already had everything mapped out, and we were just basically executing it and trying to recreate it better. Like, anything that we felt was not as good as it could have been on the Tascam tape version, you know, we would we would take it to that next level on the on the real version. Yeah, it was cool. It was very very, um, and it was also just like for many of the group members, it was their first time ever being in the studio. For me, right. it wasn't because I had a group called Attack before this that I did, and you know, so for me it wasn't. But I mean, in fact, that's why I knew about Tracks Thirty Two Studio because I had already done something there. So. Yeah, but it was it was still very much uh, a new experience for all of us to be on a label, for instance, to be able to record an entire album. I had never done an entire album. You know, I'd done some singles with Attack. So, yeah, it was, yeah. It, it was dope. 
What? How did you get the deal? Was it? Did you have like a, a single? Like what was? How, what got you? Yeah. The deal? So we, um, Jermaine Dupri's father's name Michael Malden, and Michael yeah. Malden was a a local dude managing you know people, and really I think he was driving trucks for um, Brick, the really famous uh, R and B group. And um, so, long story short, he wanted to get into management. Uh, he loved what we were doing. He heard it from my man Ian Burke, who's a legend here in Atlanta. And, um, you know, he started shopping our music around. It took him a while, but we were able to get a label to, you know, sign on. It was Chrysalis Records. They had had Blondie at the time. Um, They had a subsidiary rap label. And on that rap label, they had Gangstar. Uh, They would later sign uh, D'Angelo. So, you know, they were just trying to sort of get their foot in the door. And I think that's why they took a chance on a group like Arrested Development. So when the album drops, is the singles already out before the album's out? I don't remember. Like what came Well, actually, first? yeah, we were we were first dropped. I mean, we were first signed to a single deal. So the single what was, was the Mr. first single. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Wendell back with uh, Natural on the B side, and yep. Mr. Wendell it never came out as a single first because uh, during that time period, my grandmother passed away, and mm. then my brother died that same week. And um, and so I wrote the song Tennessee, and I wrote that because it was the last place I saw my grandmother and my brother was at her funeral. So when I wrote that song, I was in an extremely emotional state, and so I asked the label, or maybe I even like was like I forced them in a sense, like I want to release this record first, and that ended up being our first single, Tennessee, which is. A huge hit, you know what I mean? Like one of the one of the greatest, one of the most classic greatest hip hop songs ever. Yeah, yeah, and it still it still knocks today. You know, it's not doesn't sound dated. You can put it on whenever and still rings. You know what I mean? And that's thirty almost thirty years old, right? Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. That's that's quite the accomplishment. Yes, thirty one years old. You know, and okay, (laughs) now it is because this year. The three years, five the, months, right. two days in that Life of album turns 30 this year. Right. right. And so, so that's, the single was out just about, uh, you know, it was out the year before, but only a few months the year before. Yeah. I remember you, I remember you talking about it in the Rhyme of Reason yeah. <laughs> documentary yeah. where you were Prince. <laughs> yeah. Prince, you sampled yeah. Prince and you yep. let that guy, that let that joint go all the way to number one and then you yeah. would like, you owe me some money. Exactly right. Man, let me tell you, man, Prince was shrewd. That must have hurt. That must have hurt. It did hurt at first. Like, you know, the record was a hit at this time. So I got a call from Prince's office, and he wanted $100,000. And all I used was the word Tennessee. Like, I literally I just, Tennessee. And that was it. And it's just like, he wanted hundred grand, And I thought that was ridiculous at the time. But it was nothing I could do about it because he had the right to pull it off the shelves. He had a right to take publishing for it. Like he could have owned part of the song if he wanted to. So later on, as I started to learn more about the business, I really realized that that was a break. Like, and I met Prince. And so I realized he really did us a favor in a sense. Like he got a hundred grand, but the record made millions of dollars. So, I mean, you know. It's all relative. It's just perspective. But at the time, I thought it was crazy. 
Yeah, did you stop listening to Prince records for a while? Were you like, I'm not listening to any Prince. Nah, nah, I didn't. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, Prince, like, Prince is my favorite artist ever. and I figured that. Uh, yeah, he is, man. And it's like, I had sampled Play in the Sunshine, another song of his from um, the double album, uh, time, Sign of the Times. And that Play in the Sunshine was supposed to be on a song, Children Play with Earth. And so... Um, we tried to get permission for that. And Prince was actually anti-sampling at that time. He was very anti-hip-hop in the sense of how it was created. You know, he right. I think Chuck D might have helped him get hip to what hip-hop really was and that it wasn't, uh, you know, a lazy man thing or something. It was it was art, you know. And, right. um, yeah, so he, he hit us for 50% of the record, uh, Children Play With Earth, and... I took the sample off, like in the midnight hours, like right before the record was about to be yeah. delivered to the label. I uh, went back in, and back in these days, this is before Pro Tools or yeah, Able to Live. So, you know, when you have to recall a mix, it's a lot of people that get involved. You have to turn all the knobs to the exact place that the mix was. You take pictures of all the outboard gear, the EQs, all of this stuff, and, you know, you, you redo a mix. And the song, the version that's on the album, is the version without Prince's sample because I didn't want to pay 50% of the record. You know, it's a small sample. So the, so the album's out. It's a huge smash. You're number one everywhere. Three singles. that Did all three singles like go number one? They you did. Know, on people, Wendell, yeah, Tennessee, like, right? Three number yeah, one I singles, correct? All three went, I believe, to number, if, if I remember correctly, to number one on the rap and R&B charts. Um, I forget which one went number one on the pop charts, and Tennessee was number three when Prince called on the pop charts. So, yeah, um, but it was already number feel? one on the rap charts and on the R and B charts. What's that feel like? Um, outstanding, amazing. <laughs> it feels because it's it, you know it was my first record. It was the group's first record. It was, and so I'm speaking for myself when I say how it felt like. You know, it was so many layers to it. You know, Tennessee came from a very personal spot. And for that to be our first single, like the flagship song of the group, and then for it to do so extremely well, I mean, you know, VH1 would name it, you know, one of the best songs ever written in hip hop. I mean, the yeah. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is it's one of the 500 best songs, not just hip hop songs, but period. Yeah. You know, so like, when you get those kind of accolades on your first trip out, you know, your first time around the block, it's, it's overwhelming and it feels obviously amazing. You feel accepted and you feel, you know, encouraged. And, um, but the, the double-edged sword of that is by the second album, you feel scared. Cause it's like, <laughs> how am I going to, you know what I'm saying? Like match this, how are we going to beat this? And you start getting in your head a little bit. So, it was it was a double edged sword, but it was still amazing. 